You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, November 23rd. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the BBC headlines, two days before Thanksgiving, the California Report serves up some tips on safely gathering with family, some of whom you might be meeting for the very first time. After regional news and weather, Paul Emery talks to hydrologist Steve Baker about the tools and money California has at hand to help it weather the driest two-year stretch in history. We end with Mark Cuniberti and Money Matters. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Governor Gavin Newsom says he has, quote, no sympathy, no empathy whatsoever for people he described as creating havoc and terror on our streets. Newsom was referencing the recent spate of seemingly organized, large-scale smash-and-grab thefts that have hit usually high-end stores in such cities as San Francisco and Walnut Creek. There have also been robbery attempts in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills in recent days. During a news conference yesterday, the governor said that he expects the guilty to be found and prosecuted and people to feel safe while shopping over the holidays. In addition, Newsom said law enforcement, including the California Highway Patrol, will step up patrols to help protect crowded commercial shopping districts in the coming weeks. Over the summer, California reestablished a retail theft task force to deal with rising crime rates and to recover stolen merchandise. Governor Newsom also visited a vaccination site in San Francisco's Mission District yesterday to promote COVID-19 vaccine booster shots, particularly among people of color. About 17% of all the boosters uh, have been administered within the Latino community. That's not good enough. That's why we're here. Newsom thanked the Mission District's Latino Task Force for its work testing and vaccinating the local community and committed to more partnerships with similar organizations in the state to better reach communities of color. The governor said booster shots are particularly important in the winter months. Last year, between October and December, COVID-19 cases rose ninefold in the state. In Santa Cruz County, meanwhile, an indoor mask mandate has been reinstated due to increasing COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. The mandate requires everyone to wear face coverings when indoors, regardless of vaccination status. In a statement, Santa Cruz County Health Officer Dr. Gail Newell says a potential winter COVID surge appears to be a significant threat to the health and safety of the community. The health order even requires masks to be worn in private settings, including homes, when people who are not from the household are present. The previous mask order was rescinded in late September. Nevertheless, many see this holiday season as a bit of a return to normalcy. With the protection of COVID-19 vaccines, extended families are reuniting after being apart for months, if not years. KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports. Couples are meeting their in-laws for the first time. New babies are being introduced to the family. Thanksgiving 2021 will look more like pre-COVID years. Unlike last year, you know, we don't have to all stay at home for Thanksgiving. Andrew Neumer is an epidemiologist at UC Irvine. There are some precautions that we can and should take. We should vaccinate, we should boost, but you know, I'm not here to say that Thanksgiving is canceled. 
you also need to wait at least four days after an exposure to test for the virus. That means traveling through crowded airports and immediately testing won't give you an accurate result. It's just important to keep in mind the incubation period. You know, a negative test is not a watertight guarantee that there's no COVID going on. It just, it just means that at the time of the testing, there's not SARS-CoV-2 virus present. He says it's also hard to differentiate between COVID and other respiratory viruses like the flu. So get tested if you have symptoms, especially before you head to grandma's house. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Health officials overseeing medical care in the Santa Clara County jail system say they can't adequately quarantine people who've contracted COVID-19 because they've run out of space. Due to a record surge of more than 200 COVID cases this month, health officials are now recommending a 20% decrease in the jail population, which is strongly opposed by the sheriff's office. In a memo obtained by the San Jose Mercury News, because of the surge, quarantine periods have been reduced from 14 to 10 days, and infected people who are in custody have to be moved around more frequently because of a lack of space. At least one person who is incarcerated tells the Mercury News that those who have contracted the virus have been given only basic provisions and that the jails are not providing items like masks or disinfectants for hygiene purposes. Yesterday, we brought you a story about Diablo Canyon, California's last remaining commercial nuclear power plant located on the central coast in San Luis Obispo County. After decades of calls to shutter the plant, Diablo Canyon is scheduled to fully close in 2025. But there are questions about whether the state will be able to replace the power the plant currently generates, which doesn't emit greenhouse gases, with clean, renewable energy options like wind and solar. That's left some energy experts and environmentalists asking whether Diablo Canyon's closure should be reconsidered and atomic energy continue as a power source. After our Diablo Canyon story aired yesterday, the California report got an email from someone who was part of policy discussions leading up to the plant's closure and who still feels confident in the decision to close the plant. When people say it's clean energy, that's right at a certain level but it doesn't take into account the waste that is left behind. That's Bill Monning, a former California state senator who represented the Central Coast region where Diablo Canyon is located and worked on legislation to help the area prepare for the closure. To help mitigate the impacts to the local communities, to cities, to school districts, and over 300 million to retain workers for the safe decommissioning of that plant. That so communities around the plant won't be blindsided by the closure when it happens in the ways other regions with plants have shut down in the past. And so as people kind of weigh in now and say, well, why don't we keep it open? There's a gap between available renewable energy. Um, This is so-called clean energy. It doesn't take into account that history. And the perhaps most important fact, PG&E was a member of this agreement and has no interest in seeking to renew their licensing. And there's no evidence that anybody else does either. Again, that's former California State Senator Bill Monning. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, 
focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together on the web at schmidtfutures.com. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And that is the California Report for Tuesday, November 23rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. In regional news, the Sacramento Bee website reports this afternoon that about 1 million Californians who received unemployment payments from the pandemic-related federal benefit program now will have to prove to the state they had a prior work history or face paying back benefits. The State Employment Development Department stated today a potential overpayment could be all benefits you received. And, EDD added, we will add a 30% penalty if we determine that you intentionally gave false information or withheld information to receive benefits. According to federal rules, the new documentation requirement could also apply to those who filed a claim and never even received a payment. Those affected were paid from the federally funded Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. The PUA was created in March 2020 to ease the impact of the pandemic-triggered recession. The program ended in early September. About 2.9 million Californians received benefits from the program, which provided help for people who traditionally would not qualify for regular state-provided unemployment insurance, such as independent contractors and small business owners. The Bureau of Land Management says it will conduct a controlled prescribed burn as soon as next week of up to 1,800 piles of tree branches and brush on roughly 75 acres in the Inamim Forest, east of North Columbia in Nevada County. Timing of the burn will depend on weather conditions, air quality, and other factors. This treatment is part of the Inamim Forest Restoration Project, a multi-year effort to reduce the hazards that can fuel wildland fire. The Inamim Forest is nearly 2,000 acres of BLM-managed public land intermingled with private land on the San Juan Ridge. Wildland fire crews will burn piles on the Shields Camp and Bear Tree parcels. The burn piles are a result of shaded fuel breaks after crews thinned dense tree cover and removed underlying brush to improve forest health. The prescribed burn is expected to take about a month and is a joint effort of the BLM, Cal Fire, National Guard, North San Juan Fire Department, and the Yuba Watershed Institute. Smoke may be visible in North Columbia, Lake City, and North Bloomfield. Lastly, this news comes to us via ubanet.com. Hospice of the Foothills has announced it will close its Grass Valley store after Friday and combine its Nevada City and Grass Valley gift and thrift stores into one new location in February. The new store will be at 840 East Main Street in Grass Valley. The Nevada City store will close on December 31st. The Penn Valley store will remain open. In the weather for our region... Sunny and mild for the foreseeable forecast, with high temperatures mostly in the 60s and lows in the 40s and 50s. No precipitation on the horizon. Tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low of 43 degrees. Wednesday, sunny with a high in the mid-60s and a low near 47. A touch cooler and cloudier on Thanksgiving Day. In Truckee tonight, clear with a low of 19 degrees. Wednesday in Truckee, mostly sunny, 
with a high in the mid-40s and a low of 18. In Sacramento tonight, clear with a low of 42. Sunny Wednesday with a high of 62 and a low of 37. Don't be fooled. One atmospheric river wasn't the answer to ending our drought. Hydrologist Steve Baker takes a look at the big picture of California water management. This water news with Steve Baker is supported by clear water and filtration on rough and ready highway, Grass Valley. Well, it's time for water news with Steve Baker. And Steve, um, welcome back to KVMR. Well, I'm happy to be here, as always. Well, Steve... Um, When I hear next year's water projections for the winter, I wonder if we can always stay ahead of scarce water years. We are coming up with, well, we're coming out of right now, the driest two-year stretch in California history. Okay, we made the record books. And then I've heard that the projections for this next year is uh, low precipitation, unfortunately. So this is the beginnings for me of where really I'm feeling like, you know, we'll be okay in these water-scarce years. I'm, I'm, I'm noticing in California that we're getting away from this putting out the fire approach to managing things, and we're, we're doing things in a better way. Celeste Cantu, uh, she's the chair with the San Diego Regional Water Quality Control Board. She's saying, hey, guys, we're lucky. There's a lot of money in this state that's earmarked for addressing 21st century climate change challenges. Well, guess what? That means there's a lot of water projects that can be financed. Carla Nemeth, with the director of California Department of Water Resources, says that California is going to start its own drought monitor, which is, uh, there is already a federal one. It gives information out that's available to everybody, but this will be a state one with a lot more uh, accuracy and instant availability of information that can be used by everybody, all, all those of us living in California, to manage our supplies. So it's a very, very good tool for all of us to use. There's more money becoming available to expand water storage projects. California is prepped to take advantage of major storms that our winters bring. In other words, conveyance to move all that extra water we get during these crazy atmospheric river storms and direct them to groundwater recharge areas. Excellent projects. And, of course, uh, next year's spending plan. Oh, my gosh, we're, our fan, financial capacity is going up even more. So we are poised to do uh, good things and better things than we have even in the past. Uh, there's more coping tools, more management tools, uh, those types of things. It's uh, it, California is a special place. Interestingly, the way a lot of our laws are written, it's water's meant to be shared geographically and temporally, not hoarded. That's kind of how the system's built. So this uh, this system, which is the foundation, is is our water right system. It is really a water management program, and sometimes it gets tested, you know, during those scarce years of water. And what usually happens when you have scarce years of water is you learn about what's not working very well, <laughs> okay? And But thing is, that perpetuates us into doing a better job so that it will work better. And uh, we, 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 have, we have a good goal here. All Californians, 
need to be supported. Their efforts need to be equitable. And each of us have a responsibility to get all this done. Okay. These ideals are in the forefront of, of all of us. Okay, Steve, how do we actually stay on track to do those things? Depending on the issue, you focus on priorities, right? Okay, first priority, water security. It's always the first priority. So those of you on, uh, on city water or wells, you know, think these are the questions you want to ask yourselves. What's in jeopardy? What happens if you, if you lose water? What's going to happen to your life, your livelihood? How much tolerance do you have for taking the pain? of the situation. You know, if you're out for a day, maybe no big deal. A couple days, two, three days, no big deal. What about if it's for a more like a month or a whole season or more? How much pain can you tolerate? And then what's the risk in making the wrong decision? So inaction, if there's inaction on your part, what are you risking? Really look at those questions and answer those for yourselves. When the conflicts start up, this is another thing. You, you look at the situation through the lens of diplomacy. And also the transformation of the water conflict. So these are the other two things that we need to think about when we're talking about uh, priorities. Diplomacy is really looking at what interests exist within the population that's being impacted. Okay, what, what are the interests? Yeah, what's everybody's needs? What's their wants? And then they're looking at those differences. And, um, and that's where you can transform things and make things better. So you're looking at uh, the differences between rights, differences between the needs that we each have, the benefits, the equity, things like that. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. That's where a lot of the tensions lie. So the, the goal really for all of us is to see the bigger picture and then act on it. That's what it's all about. And I am most thankful really for a community that is actually willing to do that. I'm very thankful for that. Steve, uh, thanks a lot. Talk to you in two weeks. You bet. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. We close today's newscast with Money Matters, wherein Mark Cuniberti considers the possibility of a catastrophic market crash and says loss prevention methods used by the pros might help to reassure the mom-and-pop investor. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. It is said the markets always come back from stock crashes and indeed tracking the Dow from its inception. It has. That said, why do investors wring out their hands and lose sleep whenever the market suffers a severe setback? It's human nature to abhor losing money, especially if it's your life savings. Moreover, if we are fully aware of the market's perfect track record of returning to an upward trajectory, the demons of the mind, however, never fail to play havoc with our psyche and conjure up thoughts of losing it all in an horrendous market wipeout. If you have experienced these feelings during market crashes, you are not alone. Almost everyone I know, both professionals and novices alike, have fallen victim to the what-ifs of a market Armageddon-like moment. Investors ponder between sitting tight or selling it all. 
few, if any, actually buy more stock once the freight train of a major crash gets rolling. It takes a bulletproof mindset to not get upset as thousands of dollars disappear down the rat hole of a Wall Street crash. Most investors will call their advisors and want him or her to give them at least some semblance of a warm and fuzzy feeling that all is okay. The buy and hold mantra anchors the argument, and indeed, during many crashes I have seen, most will grin and bear a market crash. Better yet, maybe grit and bear it is a more suitable term. In any case, the question becomes, can the market ever crash, defy historical precedent, and fail to come back in a once-in-a-lifetime final or prolonged wipeout? For that type of crash to occur, it would have to be a prolonged and wealth-obliterating event, somewhere in the order of an 80% retracement of the markets, much like we saw in 1929. That event witnessed a 73% setback between 1929 and 1932 and didn't recover for 25 years, not counting for inflation. What would cause such a crash? In my opinion, it's unlikely the excessive speculation we saw in the 1920s would cause a similar event now. That sort of speculation already exists on certain levels in today's market. More likely, it would be an economic catastrophe along the lines of a Mexican peso moment. In other words, a currency crisis brought on by monetary inflation, which is money printing and massive deficit spending. The remedy would be a sudden and prolonged series of interest rate increases by the Federal Reserve in an attempt to rein in a serious inflation problem. Should investors do anything to prepare for such an event? It's likely the majority of investors and advisors think the possibility of such an occurrence is so remote, no preparation is necessary. I would counter this argument by notating the most important caution exercised by professional traders and money managers is loss prevention and control. Iconic investor Warren Buffett says the two rules of investing are rule one, don't lose money. Rule two, don't forget rule one. I don't know a professional trader nor money manager worth their salt that does not use loss prevention techniques in an attempt to limit losses when and if they occur. If all the pros use loss prevention techniques, why don't mom and pop investors and their advisors use them as well? That's a very good question. A crash of the magnitude of which I'm talking about could obliterate one's life savings for good, or at least for an extended period of time. With that in mind, to not consider some sort of loss prevention in the face of what kind of damage could be inflicted on retirement savings is, in my opinion, foolhardy. That does it for today's Money Matters. Views expressed are my opinions only and do not necessarily represent those of this station, its staff members, or underwriters, and should not be construed as investment advice or a representation of any bank, investment firm, or advisory firm. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California insurance license OL34249, and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. My name's Mark Cudaberti. That's our newscast. Coming up next on KVMR, it's an all-new episode of Embracing the Journey. Host Lori Burkhart Frank interviews Diane Barlow, volunteer coordinator for Hospice of the Foothills, and Becky Robinson, who will talk about the life of a hospice volunteer. At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Tonight, Amy's guests are Noam Chomsky, and the creator of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, 
who talks about teaching critical race theory and white supremacy on trial. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Sweetland Garden Mercantile in downtown North San Juan. Retailing fall harvest supplies, irrigation and plumbing needs, seasonal recreation gear, and much more. Open 9 to 5, close Sundays. SweetlandGM.com or 292-9000. Dig it. And Serino's at Main Street, serving Italian cuisine since 1983. Open Wednesday through Sunday, 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. for lunch and dinner. Offering private dining snugs available for customer safety and comfort. Information, serenosatmainstreet.com. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. To find stories you may have missed and expanded versions of many of our interviews, go to our website, kvmr.org. And you can re-listen to the KVMR News and Steve Baker's Morning News updates wherever you get your podcasts. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Have a wonderful evening.